0: President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. We tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets, here on Business Radio powered by the Moore School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, Author of Stocks for the Long Run and The Future for Investors, also joining me in the studio today, Gorev Sinha, asset allocation strategist at Wisdom Tree. I should note, Gaurav and I are registered representatives of Side Fund Services. Professor was is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion today is not tied to the offer sale and investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. An interesting week for data. We had the jobs report this morning, um, start of the fourth quarter. Um, lots going on, Professor. I know you're on the road and traveling, but we got we got you for a few minutes to get your your quick commentary on what you saw from the jobs front we saw the labor force participation rate we're seeing sort of pick up in in uh, wages what's your your general read uh, and we have all the hurricane data clouding this as well
1: (laughs) yeah absolutely I just arrived in Pittsburgh so I'm happy to be with you for a few minutes Uh, it was uh, I've never seen such a big difference between the household and the uh, payroll and there's a reason for that. So the payroll was dismal in terms of the loss of jobs, downward revision of the previous uh, two months. The household was in total boom uh, in terms of uh, the unemployment rate going down to 4.2 percent, despite the participation rate rising, which means more people in uh, working and in the labor market. Now, how what's the difference? The difference is in the payroll if if the people couldn't get to work they weren't in the payroll but the unemployment rate in the household uh survey is uh asks the question are you working now someone who is you know can't get to their job because of floods or their their establishment is temporarily closed are they going to say yes i am working so that's why you got such a huge difference uh between the two uh, you uh, that also by the way is some of the reason for the big jump uh, in um uh, the wages, because more of the lower-income people couldn't get to work. They weren't punched in on the payroll, and that's why that went how. Now, of course, that, that unemployment rate drop and the payroll jump really kind of scared the bond market for a little bit, but now they're looking at the data and saying, yeah, this is really... Uh, hurricane related. And by the way, the, the, the ISM surveys were just booming. And again, that is also somewhat hurricane related in terms of the supply to is going up. The bottom, the bottom line, I, I think is, and it's something I mentioned last week, we're almost in a 3% growth economy. Um, um, and, uh, we're going strong and, uh, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's Trump's policy. Of course, i will take credit for it of that. But we've had improving productivity and we've had uh, you know, good employment. Again, it, there's no question that the, the hurricane is definitely affecting the payroll. Uh, but the household shows tremendous strength. And even if you make a correction for the service deliveries, which pumped up both the ISM manufacturing and service, they were still strong. Uh, going into the fourth quarter, so um, you know uh, we'll get more data that'll help solidify it. But I, I think the economy is still running strong, and we uh, you see the ten year, you know, moving up to two three. I mean, this is two four actually, almost two three eight. I mean, two four has been the peak that the ten year has been at, or in in the last six months. So uh, it's really interesting whether people think it's so strong that we might actually break the ten year to two forty.
0: Very good. And so, you know, I, I know everybody's, we would talk about tax reform every week. We're seeing a little bit, I see a little bit more optimism there. Anything you see on that front as, as you uh, think, think about the finals? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's a question of the state and local, and you know, maybe we should just give a limit on how many deductions and you can take them any way you want to. There's still a lot of negotiation that yeah. has to go on here. And uh, so, uh, you know, at, at, I, I didn't see anything this week that really increased my encouragement, but I still think that some sort of tax deal is is going to be done um, despite that. Um, and I, I, think there, I think it's going to be a good quarter for earnings, although the bar is high. Take a look at what's going on with the market while the equity market's on fire. And it's an expectation of great earnings and fast GDP growth and hoping that the yields just don't go up that fast. Uh uh, but, uh, you know, clearly, the uh, the earnings data, as we talked last week, um, um, is it, looking strong into this um, uh, fourth quarter.
0: Very good. I know you're traveling. We've got a, a great discussion here the rest of the show. Thanks for joining us for a few minutes.
1: Thanks for having me. Bye.
0: So uh, we have a, a really interesting show today. In the first half of the conversation, we're talking with Tim Reynolds, who's a senior portfolio manager for the Employees Retirement System of Texas. Tim is the lead manager for ERS's Emerging Market Portfolio, which is valued at over $1 billion. Uh, he's worked at USAA Investment Management, American Century, Thornburg. Uh, I've gotten to know Tim through uh, our business relationship at Wisdom Tree. We've talked with Tim uh, extensively over the years. Um, Tim, thanks for joining us on our program today. Hey, thanks for having me, um, you know, so I want to go into a little bit about your background um, Talk talk a little bit about sort of you know You've worked in sort of these different investment management shops. You joined ERS So maybe we could talk a little bit about yourself and then we'll get into how uh, ERS manages its uh, you know, Portfolio and how you know what you oversee at the emerging markets. But let's start off high-level You know, just talk a little bit about your your own personal background how you got uh, brought up in the investment management business
2: Okay uh- I've been doing this for about 25 years, and I actually started out more on the public real estate side, um, running a REIT portfolio before REITs became so mainstream. And then uh, gravitated over more to the domestic growth side. And I did that for quite a long time and uh, got to really know that universe very thoroughly. and. Um, felt like I had a competitive advantage just because I knew when management had a tone change or all the key metrics that drove the stocks um and and I did that for quite a while and and e r s presented an opportunity to have a more global perspective, which i think is very important these days. The world is so interconnected and um various ways to slice and dice the market but it, it was an opportunity to expand my skill set and my perspective on currencies and the complexity of, of trading international markets, and uh, that's led to emerging markets, which is, is really fascinating. It's, it's a whole new realm for me. I've been doing it for about f- five years, and I, I uh, one of the great things about the investment industry is that it, it, you really can't get bored. It can be challenging and frustrating, and it's very competitive. But it's your own fault if you're bored. There's always so so much to learn, and that's particularly applicable to emerging markets. And I sort of use the analogy I've heard of people who are very informed on wines. You can never be a true expert. Uh, microclimates, different years, different vintages, different types of grapes. You can be informed and, and extremely knowledgeable, but the, it's so changing. So I really enjoy the, the challenge and and. Uh, and I think it's a, a little more. Um, you can add value, I think, more as an investment manager because it is so dynamic and, and ever changing.
0: So t- talk a little bit about just the ERS system, um, the funding, how you think about you know sort of the overall portfolio level for the entire system, and then you know we could get drill into how emerging markets fits into that.
2: Okay, so we're about a twenty-five, twenty-six billion dollar trust, um, a fairly mature plan, Uh, and we have all what you might call just slices of the asset allocation pie. Uh, Used to be a more plain vanilla stock and bond portfolio, but in the last 10 years, really have developed the alternatives program, things like private equity, private direct real estate investing, hedge funds, um, to complement the traditional stock and bonds. So we're a, a diversified I think we have a very talented group of professionals managing the trust. And uh, Emerging markets is about 4% of total trust assets now at at 4%, and uh, that's a portfolio we run in-house. On the public equity side, we do mix uh, external managers who have capabilities that that we might not have in-house, and then we complement that with um, our our own internal stock-picking effort.
0: Sure. So, how do you think about um, sort of return expectations for the the overall plans, and then think about, you know, maybe emerging markets in context of that and the different asset classes? Okay.
2: Um, you know, emerging markets offer, one, a diversifying element, and we think a higher return than other asset classes. You know, we're in a challenging low-return environment, uh, the, the traditional 7 8% percent uh, Assumed rate of return for the plan is, is more challenging, um, and we're reluctant at this phase of the cycle to really continue to bump out on the risk spectrum. So, uh, emerging markets is a core component, but uh, delivering. said we have been, and we've been in a obviously a bull market since the the real estate crisis of '08. Uh, so, uh, eight nine year bull market. Um, well, like I said, emerging markets is a core diversifier and uh, one of our higher, you know, risk re- risk reward opportunities that we have in the trust.
0: Great. And so, so, you mentioned, you know, some portfolio management that you do in-house, and then you man- you sort of look for outside managers who have a certain set of skills. To get to talk through what makes something that you would want to do in-house. How you think about the in-house management style, and what makes the the outside managers uh, sort of special there.
2: Sure. Uh, so we think we can do what you might call core management, and, and we don't want to get too technical or boring, but uh, we benchmark to the MSCI, well-known benchmarking service. So we're an MSCI shop, and we run core portfolios, which are the complement of growth and value. And we think we can do that. Uh, as you know, it's hard to beat the market. Active managers struggle to beat the market. and. So we run sort of low tracking error core portfolios in-house in a lot of different slices of the market, so large cap, domestic core, small cap, domestic mid cap domestic, the emerging market portfolio, we have an in a uh, European portfolio, and we have a developed Asia portfolio. We run all of those in-house um, but then uh, and so I guess I would break it down as our in-house effort. Is cheap beta, exposure to the market and all those slices of uh, the equity market. And we have also done a very good job of beating the market, which is not easy. And we've done that with low risk. So we're cheap beta, if you will, and we're very cheap alpha. But we don't think we have the answer to everything. And, and so uh, managers that we think uh, have an even better chance of adding alpha, w- w- we use as a complementary from our our core in-house capabilities.
0: Very good. Now, this may tie into something that we've talked about. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Tim Reynolds of uh, the Employment Retirement System of, uh, Employee's Retirement System of Texas, ERS. Um, now, Tim, when we, you know, thinking about emerging markets and the conversations you and I have had over the years, a few years ago, you know, you sort of made an observation and, and comment to, to us saying, you know, a lot of the emerging markets are state-owned companies, and have you ever looked at... Creating, you know, a portfolio that's ex-state owned. Um, So you and I went back and forth on this concept a lot, and and really, you were, you know, uh, a key pioneer in sort of thinking, pushing us to think in this regard. Talk about, you know, what you see in the industry, what led you to sort of guide us in
2: that path, and and how you think about that. Sure, I think it was a little bit evolutionary. I started thinking about this um, really with the company Petrobras, which is the Brazilian state-owned oil giant. And at one time, it was a very interesting company, tremendous assets, and then all of a sudden, they transformed themselves into a, a poorly run, the most indebted company in the world. And that got me thinking about if governments were equipped to run publicly traded companies in the, in the right way. And then I saw a chart that compared oil companies. in. So, for instance, the, the one that really jumped off the page was ExxonMobil versus PetroChina, the big state-owned enterprise company in, in China. And they had about the same revenues, enormous companies, $400 billion in revenue, $30 billion in profits. Those were very much the same, but PetroChina has 545,000 employees, and ExxonMobil had 75,000 employees for generating the same amount of revenue and profit. So again that uh was another turn of the crank that uh, maybe you should treat these state-owned enterprises certainly from a valuation standpoint differently than uh private run enterprises. And and so it started with me wanting to really have a a kind of a designator, one would be state-owned and one non-state-owned and, and I could just sort them and treat them differently, make sure I was using different Valuation metrics and tre- and and then slowly I noticed it seemed like the market was doing the same thing, separating the inventory um, and then the final element was what I would just call exclusion based investing since since we are uh, we compete all long relative versus a benchmark. That you can win that game, everyone wants to find the net, next netflix Facebook, what have you, but you can you can win that and add value by what you avoid or exclude and so uh that concept of what would happen if you excluded state owned enterprises from your investment universe uh and I got you and then uh, you guys took an interest in that and were able to do a lot of the heavy lifting quantitative stuff that I never would and uh i think the results were pretty fascinating yeah and, and the the i the last thing i would just add to that is sort of our mantra for emerging markets uh is you have to invest don't just invest in emerging markets you have to invest within it there's 850 companies in the msci universe some should be avoided there's lots of ways to slice and dice so it's it's hard to describe emerging markets with blanket statements, uh, you know, they're cheap, they're rich, you really have to crack the universe apart. So that that the stripping out the state-owned enterprises fit into our how do you invest within, not just in emerging markets?
0: No, it was such a interesting conversation once you led us down that path. And it was, you know, thirty percent we, s- we found in the broad EM indexes that were state owned. And and you get at the time when we were looking at a few years ago, you had things in China where this was before some of the big China tech companies, and you would have seventy percent of a traditional China index in these these state owned companies. And you know, we said, Well, what if you just removed them? You would have, you know, very little weight in China. Um, you're gonna have some sector tilts, very little energy financials, you're gonna be much more consumer and tech, and we went back and forth. Talk about you know, what you were, if you think about trying to just own the, the category and, and trying to tilt it towards non-state ownership, sort of the considerations if we were to just remove them all, like how you were thinking about that type of decision. Um,
2: yeah, I, 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 kind of the sector bets fell out more as a byproduct. Um, I, I was very concerned about making big country bets when we, uh, for controlling for risk and how to construct this potential portfolio. Um, I hear a lot of smart people with really well-constructed platforms doing country analysis, and I've, and that can certainly be part of your return stream when you get that right. I just haven't not seen people do a very good job of it. Um, predicting countries, outperformance versus another is very difficult. It's really more of a function of the valuation and the attractiveness of the individual stocks. It's not one is growing five percent GDP versus three and five is better. The the three that's going to three and a half percent GDP growth with cheap uh, stocks is probably more interesting. So it was more important to control for a country risk and sector. Um, but I do think you have some sector bets in that you are underweight materials, commodities, and energy. So, if you were bullish on emerging markets, commodities, materials, and energy, this this this, uh, this way to uh, invest in the emerging markets would would, would not serve you well.
0: Sure. Yeah, I think one of the things we tried to do in creating the broad index for a a total EM portfolio was, let's try to constrain the country bet. So if you wanted to, if you just remove state ownership, you might go from 20% China down to 5% China, let's say. But let's try to constrain that, keep China's country weight, so you're going to have to blow up some of those exposures, reduce some of the other exposures, but then try to constrain the sector tilts inherent to that. You might have some sector drifts, like you're saying, but try to constrain that as much as you can, too. Um, and th- so that's that's sort of how I think we came together to, to, to work on those problems. Now I've got Gorov sitting Sinha sitting here. He's one of our asset allocation strategists. He's from India. I know he's super bullish India long run. So on this country changes, um, I mean I'm curious, Gaurav, Any you want to jump into the conversation? Absolutely,
3: Jair. And hi hi Tim. This is Gorov. So I think what has happened over the last few years is that S N P constantly delivering positive returns in ninth consecutive year since 2008. Uh, people have in general gotten complacent about investing. A broad and and this has also created huge valuation mm-hmm. oppor- opportunity where profits in em have mostly kept up but stock prices haven't you know kept up uh, ac- according to the earnings growth so if you are a person who is investing based on factors whether it's valuation it makes sense to be invested in emerging markets Um, If you are looking into quality, which is, you know, never bad to invest in quality companies, again, if you look in specifically ex-state-owned companies, quality is something where you can, you know, you can uh, get an exposure to. Uh, Tim, I would like to get your thoughts on EM small caps as an asset class. What, what, What do you think of EM small caps? Do you think it's the right time to be in that? Uh, because small caps are often more closely tied to local economies and as local economies expand, small caps usually tend to benefit more than the large caps.
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely in a, a universe that's of high interest, um, not nearly as well covered and I think the analysis and the, the quality of quantitative data in emerging markets is getting better all the time but it's pretty, it, the more you move down cap the more raw it is and so If you're willing to roll up your sleeves and and take uh, an even deeper dive, there's great opportunities. And India, actually, is the prime example where it's it's a well-positioned country, a very large economy in need of infrastructure and some things that can increase the economic efficiency, great demographics, excellent management teams all over the country. But the larger cap uh, tend to be very expensive. If you're willing to do the work again and and move down cap, you can find high-growth companies yet to be discovered trading at much more interesting valuations. So I I definitely think that that is an opportunity.
0: Tim, on the second half of the program, we're talking with Arvind Gupta, who's the head of digital for India. So it's a really fascinating conversation. What a a great show, talking on EM with the two of you here today. Um, We have about four minutes left. These conversations go quick. what in in your in your thinking about just general factor investing for emerging markets? Any other factors? We talked a lot about state ownership, a little bit on small caps. Any other things that sort of ers believes in? You know, or sort of things you personally believe in as as how people should be allocating um, factors to avoid, factors to think
2: about. Mm, uh, let me see here. Um, we certainly have a, a a quantitative framework. In in the end, uh, we we merge human, uh, again, roll up your sleeves, fundamental analysis it is it, very helpful to to meet management and discuss their business models and get to know the countries better, take some of the mystery out. It, it can really uh, help you gauge the companies. But we do start with a quantitative framework, and we don't do anything uh, particularly unique. We use the same factors, but we dovetail that with... Um, call it boots on the ground we, we meet with a lot of managements and i think you have to do both so um, you know when you pr- i think that uh, emerging markets you still probably need active managers if if you were a big enough institution it would be even perhaps more interesting to allocate uh, regionally and by country where you might have local managers back to the small cap discussion who can do interesting things we can do large cap as i said you know a while back here in town in Austin, Texas, but uh, to, to really drill down and, and find some uh, off the radar names, a, a large country like India, you, you could justify having uh, an external mandate to India alone, and perhaps Latin America, where they're you know, having lunch with these companies and, and really have a value-add perspective that can uh, allow them to find merchandise off the radar otherwise. We certainly use quantitative metrics, um, and I would say maybe a little bit of a growth bias with earnings revisions and um, dividend yield, uh, growth in dividend. and uh, another good factor has been improvement factors like improving ROE.
0: Sure. So we have about one minute left. Um, it was a quick conversation. but any, any closing thoughts on just your, your portfolio approach and things you think people should be considering in today's market?
2: Well, uh, kind of back to some of the, the the first guess there, but the economy, the backdrop still seems very constructive. It, the, intuitively, you feel we've been in a bull market for quite a while and that uh, you know, the cycle and things have to turn down at some point, but it uh, still seems very constructive and, I guess, if you will, a risk-on environment. And then the backdrop for emerging markets was actually quite, Challenging uh, a couple years ago, with the strength in the dollar, the weakness in commodities, uh, it tended to have a negative revision cycle that earnings would start high and then would be revised downward all year long. Interestingly enough, that's the opposite this year. I have not seen that in a long time where revisions are actually going up. Tim, thank you for joining us on our program today. Don't forget
0: to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.